0: This is the first Sunday after Epiphany. Epiphany, as the, the, the principal feast itself that inaugurates this season, uh, gets short shrift because it occurs on Thursdays, and so it seems so, somewhat obscure to people. In a lot of uh, Christian places, this is Christmas. So uh, people are celebrating today or Thursday Christmas or sometime Uh, The 7th or the 8th, the Eastern Church uh, celebrates Epiphany. Since the liturgical renewal in the church 40 years ago, this Sunday in the West is referred to as the Baptism of Christ or the Baptism of the Lord because it is uh, the gospel we read every year is a version of the story of Jesus' own Baptism. So, there are several themes that we I want to talk about. One is a little recapitulation uh, of the Christmas season because it 's been a while since i 've had the opportunity to tell you how much I like the word recapitulation <laughs> and Then, to say some things about epiphany and why we read what we read on Epiphany from the Gospel and why we read the story of Jesus' baptism on the Sunday after, to say something about how Matthew uh, gives to us the story of Jesus' baptism, and then to speak a little bit about how we understand the word vocation and how do we understand our own many vocations and how we might make use of this uh, event in the Church's calendar to uh, strengthen and revivify those many vocations. The Christmas season, which is quite, quite short, begins with Christmas and moves up to Epiphany, around 12 days long, and during this time we celebrate as Christian people the presence of Christ to the Church, His birth, and all of the things that it says to us about God's yes to humanity, and every year I mention to you that there are four affirmations that I believe every Christmas we receive through the biblical witness, through the great tradition of the church, and through the human reflection and and reasoning about these deep things of God uh, as we have lived for now over 2,000 years as Christian people, They are the affirmation of the goodness of our humanity, the affirmation that each of us can achieve the highest of our human potential, the affirmation that it is possible for Christian people to be joyful even in the midst of very difficult circumstances, and finally, that Christian people are called in big and small ways to be people of peace. And that these uh, presences, presents, that we receive from God during Christmas sort of set us up now for the Epiphany season. If Christmas is the celebration of the presence of Christ to the church, then the Epiphany season is the celebration of how we take that presence and make it manifest to the world. In Western Christianity for many centuries on Epiphany, We have read a gospel story about the visit of the three magi to the infant Jesus to pay him homage. And for Western Christians, that means that we understand this feast at its beginning to have something to do with the universal significance of the Incarnation. And that the birth of this child will turn out to have enormous consequences for the future in big and small ways. And so this biblical story is about Jesus being visited from people at that time who were from all corners of the known world. Who came to worship him and to affirm this universal significance. By extension, as the church read this gospel and understood it both in personal and corporate terms, they began to reflect on the idea of how do we as the people of God, in a corporate sense, seek to make manifest to the world the mighty works of Jesus Christ, the transformative power of God's love, the transformative power of God's unconditional acceptance and forgiveness, and how as individuals on a daily basis as we live our lives seek to do this as well. How do we make manifest to the world the presence of God? And what does it mean? And do we always need to understand this in terms of being some sort of a a mouthpiece for a lot of uh, abstruse religious uh, principles or vocabulary? Is there another way to do this? Where you become a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love to the world. So we read the story of the visit of the three Magi, the Eastern Church. By the way, Epiphany comes from the East as a celebration, and it dates from the second or third century, so it's very old. They read the gospel of Jesus' baptism then. They begin Epiphany with the inauguration of his public ministry. And we wait till the Sunday after to read the story of Jesus' baptism, because now Jesus is going to move in a direction... And his ministry is going to take a certain shape and form right after his baptism. So that's the reason for the differences. It's not either or. I hope we understand it in some ways as both and. Baptism is one of the templates that we lay over our own spiritual life and development and maturity. And one of the great things about the liturgical renewal... Has been. Remember, uh, the church isn't always doing something new when it makes changes. It's often bringing back into its common life and its common worship ancient practices that uh, it became clear over time had been obscured by some extraneous things. And one of the things that we came to properly was that in the ancient church, baptism was at the center of our common understanding it wasn't as it it had turned out to be by the Middle Ages cosmic spot remover. Right? So you got baptized to get your sins forgiven and put right with God. But in terms of a vocational implication, in terms of being initiated into the body of Christ in terms of being invited to follow the Savior on the way with him, those things began to be obscured. Not the least of which problem was that by the time we got to uh, the the, the, the renewal in the prayer book, baptism was done privately in most places. So it was done on, you know... Four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon is a good excuse for a cocktail party afterwards. (laughs) That was pastoral practice. I I I was not going to say this, but I will. It is my proud boast. I've crossed my track so many times in my ministry that I don't even want to get into it. But it is my proud boast that I have never, in 35 years of priesthood, done a private baptism. Not once. So if it's not faith and turns out to be works, I'm in. <laughs> we baptize people four times a year as the sort of default times. Again, the restoration of. Some evolution in in the practice. At one time, they only baptized once at the great vigil of Easter. But we do it four times. The baptism of Christ, Easter, Pentecost, and All Saints Sunday. We sometimes do baptisms on other Sundays for, as the clergy say among themselves, pastoral exigencies. But we labor to do baptism most of the time on these four Times, So this is a time to talk about the significance and the centrality of baptism. I've told you before, every Ash Wednesday, I come into the church and I read to myself the baptismal covenant in the baptismal liturgy, which we will recite together when we renew our baptismal vows. If we don't have baptisms, we renew our baptismal vows on those Sundays. And we're reminded here of the reciprocal nature of the baptismal covenant. You know, this is much more controversial than it might seem because there are a number of provinces in the Anglican communion, particularly those that are still using the older prayer books, uh, that do not contain a baptismal covenant. And so for them... The idea of speaking in terms of a baptismal covenant is a non-starter because how dare you think you can have a covenant with this omniscient, omnipotent, and eternal being who takes no prisoners and is absolutely sovereign, right? Well, here's the thing. You don't have to compromise your views about the sovereignty of God about God's omniscience, about God's omnipotence, about God's eternalness, to say that it is part of the mystery of God that God somehow needed to extend and to create, to make a creation that he called good, and to make us in his image and likeness. And so one of the things that we have always said about baptism is that what Jesus Christ is by nature, we become through adoption and grace at our baptism. And in a few minutes, I'm going to repeat myself by saying that means that the words that Jesus heard when he came out of the water addressed to him today in the gospel are the words that get addressed to you at your baptism too. And that somehow now you have the opportunity to be part of the plan of God in a deeper and fuller sense. You have the opportunity to understand in a deeper and fuller way a, a, a way of understanding reality. You know, Episc- Episcopalians are one of the churches that baptize infants and young children. And there are some Christian traditions that do not do that. They prefer to ab- baptize Adults, or somebody who makes a, a personal commitment before they get baptized. And in one sense, uh, they're on some firm ground, maybe if they're only standing with one leg on it. But the fact is, is that the primitive practice for the first four centuries or the normative age for baptism was adulthood. But we believe that there is biblical warrant to baptize infants and young children in those places in the New Testament where it speaks about the apostles baptizing households. One presumes that there were infants and young children in at least some of those households. And so we do something that has uh, enormous pastoral implications. It has pastoral implications for the parents who wish their children to share in the divine life, in the community of faith through its worship and sacraments, and to be able to do that right along. And we also do it by providing all people, whether they be infants, young children, or adults, with a frame of reference, a way that they can understand their relationship to God, and that if they step away, they can always step back into it as something that they understand and know by virtue of what they're now and have been part of. So I don't think we have in some way abrogated the true Christian uh, expression by baptizing infants and young children. Every year on the baptism of Christ, we read one of the versions from the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, of Jesus' baptism. The earliest gospel of the three is Mark. And Mark's version of Jesus' baptism differs in some ways from Luke and from Matthew. In Mark's gospel, Jesus is baptized by John. He comes out of the water and he hears a voice Thou art my beloved son, with thee I am well pleased. For Mark's gospel, that voice is an interior experience of Jesus himself. Nobody else hears that voice. Jesus hears that voice. It is there for Mark's gospel to say, this is who Jesus is. This is Jesus who has now God's affirmation. This is the Jesus who is now going to save us as he moves forward in his earthly ministry. In Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, there are differences. Today, Matthew, uh, there's a, uh, first of all, before he's baptized, John the Baptist uh, says, why, uh, in so many words, why are you coming to me to be baptized? I should be the one to be baptized by you. I think Matthew felt uncomfortable with this. The baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist is one of the most widely attested historical facts in the New Testament. There's no way the early Christian church could have got away from uh, not reporting that as it is. And so Matthew wants to, in some way, say that this must be part of the purpose and plan of God that Jesus be baptized by me. And so Jesus tells John the Baptist, let's proceed with this so that we can fulfill all righteousness. So we'll dot the I's and cross the T's. But the most significant difference between Mark and Matthew and Luke is that when Jesus is baptized and comes out of the water and the dove lands on him, the voice from heaven is heard by everybody. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Matthew and Luke report this event as an epiphany a manifestation of the presence of God, not just to Jesus, but to the people of God who now hear and understand who he is in this story. And so, by extension, we see and hear who he is in this story. So the baptism of Jesus in Matthew's gospel has a more corporate and less interior focus. And in Mark's gospel, it has a more interior... What does it say to us? It says that this affirmation of the presence of the Spirit of God has both a corporate influence on the people of God and an influence on our own personal history and our interior mental, emotional, and spiritual states. And so somehow that's what the gospel writer is at pains to speak about vocation (coughs) excuse me comes from a latin word which means to call vocare and i know even when i was a kid when the word vocation was used in many circles it it had to do with a, a religious vocation of some kind. It had to do with somebody who was going to be in the priesthood or the ministry or uh, in the religious life that they had a vocation to some form of this. I didn't hear vocation spoke about a lot in terms of all of the things that all of us do because all of us have many vocations and each of you has a vocation in your life. And so maybe baptism has something to do with our call, the call to our many vocations. It's not just the call to a particular set of religious principles. It's the call to the strengthening and the making a difference in the vocations that each of us are called to. So we have families. Some of us have children. We have the vocation we've chosen, our work And in some ways, we're called to uh, bring excellence to those many vocations, to bring some sense of intention. And that's a difficult thing because over time, it gets to be the same old, same old. So where are the locations for you and I to get some strength and stamina to be able to face the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of us on a daily basis? We believe that if we're speaking in terms of baptism, that the Spirit of God that we receive at our baptism provides us some energy, some strength, some stamina to be able to meet the challenges and the opportunities in front of us. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. And so it provides a way of of keeping strong. It provides a way of persevering which is a godly thing to do. So when you think about vocation and when you renew your baptismal vows, think about your many vocations, the way in which we live our lives on a daily basis. Sometimes people get too narrowly focused on what their vocation is, and we really all have more than one. So this week, give thanks for your baptism, Give thanks for the strength and power that it that it brings to each Christian person. Remember that our vocation as Christian people has something to do also with how we relationally bring that sense of generosity and graciousness that we receive at our baptism, our faith, hope, and love to the relationships that we have in the world with the other great faith traditions. You know, it in no way compromises our view or our teaching as Christian people that in this man's words and in this man's works, we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God and that we believe that Jesus Christ is the unique focus of the divine presence. It in no way compromises those views to say that we must be part of the bringing of peace to the other great faith traditions that have something to teach us and we to them. And so this is not the celebration of some special privileges that you and I have received through our baptism, but it is the celebration of the opportunities that we have to bring God's grace to the world. So give thanks for that opportunity. And remember again, when Jesus comes out of the water and hears, Thou art my beloved son, with thee I am well pleased, those are the same words that are addressed to you at your baptism. Thou art my beloved daughter, thou art my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Amen.